Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guests, plural, will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today, we have a twofer we have not had before. You've heard them each separately. Now you're going to hear them together. Infectious disease and public health specialist, Dr. Paul Carson from Fargo, North Dakota, and then vaccinologist and epidemiologist, Dr. John Gravenstein, to talk about COVID trends, vaccine rollouts, and whatever's a hot topic right now regarding COVID. But Andrew and I want to talk about some personal experiences. Yeah, the COVID shot. You know, last time I think we talked to Dr. Gravenstein, it was kind of pre-shot era. And now we're here in the shot era. And Tom and I just got our second dose of coronavirus vaccine last week. Yeah, both of us got our first shots within minutes of each other the first day that they rolled them out here in Fort Wayne. What was that one like for you, Andrew? You know, I enjoyed it because uh, it was all obviously the healthcare people. And so it was nice seeing everybody and everybody was really kind of excited. You know, the thought is, is that this is going to be a big turning point for everybody who's suffering from coronavirus right now. Oh, it was a lot of hope and joy in the room. It was just palpable. And all kinds of doctors were having um, photos taken of receiving the shots yeah. uh, because it, it's something we'll remember the rest of our lives, I think. And Andrew and I both received the Pfizer vaccine. What did you physically experience after your first shot, Andrew? Uh, after the first shot, I'd say nothing nothing to write home about. You know, it feels like somebody slugged you for about a day, and that's, that's about it. Slug, do you mean just pain in your arm? Yep, just like my brother hit me. <laughs> but that's yeah, about it. I got pain, you know, the next day when I woke up, there was some tenderness there, but I didn't experience anything else. I was even on EWTN News Nightly later that day. So this is 24 hours later saying, hey, my arm's sore, means the vaccine's working. And then eight hours after that, at like 2.30 in the morning, I woke up with shaking chills oh, and, no. um, and, and sweats. I didn't have a fever. I took my temperature. It was... I don't know, 99.8, 100.2, something like that. But I couldn't get back to sleep. So that, not sleeping more than four hours, led to a lot of fatigue for the next day. Um, But this was still far less than I experienced when I got the Shingrix vaccine for shingles earlier in the year. Okay, so then three weeks later, we each got the second shot. How did your second shot differ, Andrew? You know, the second shot, I had kind of heard that it was supposed to be worse, and it it kind of lived up to it. I've never had any kind of negative uh, experience, fevers or anything from shots, but about 24 hours after the second shot, I did have a pretty good fever and headache. It went away with Tylenol and Motrin, um, but it got me thinking, you know, holy cow, am I getting sick? And as soon as the medicine wore off, it didn't come back. So I said, no, that's just a reaction to the shot. So definitely hoping that we've got a pretty good immune response there. (laughs) Uh, exactly. You know, my second shot, I decided, okay, I'm going to pre-treat. So I took 800 of ibuprofen or Motrin uh, right before the shot. And then every three hours, I took 1,000 of Tylenol or 800 of Motrin again. And again, 2.30 in the morning, this time the first night, not the second night, the first night I woke up just just with some, um, you know, feeling warm and sweaty, no chills, um, no higher temperature, again, couldn't fall back to sleep. So it was then two days of fatigue. And then two days later, I felt normal again. But what I'm thinking to myself is, wow, my immune system is really kicked into shape now and is doing what it's supposed to do. And so, yeah, and I, I think one, one of the things we wanted to do was share our experience so that people are not surprised. I, I was thinking to myself, like, man, I wish somebody would have told me or I was happy that I got it on a Thursday. Um, <laughs> but that is that is not unexpected. And it does, you know, you can ameliorate the symptoms with Tylenol and ibuprofen. And that worked very well for us. So I'm excited to be immune as of, you know, tomorrow, I think, or two days from now based on uh, our recording date. Right. So we're recording on Tuesday, January 12th. So actually at 4 p.m., just a couple hours ago, recording time, uh, I am seven days post-second dose. And that means I'm at this 95% level. Andrew will be two days from now. So <laughs> thanks be to God. Hope, yeah, that's exciting. Hope for the is the beginning of the end of the pandemic. Now, my dad, on the same day I got my second dose, he's in a nursing home in Upper Michigan. He got his first dose and he got the Moderna vaccine. Okay, And it sounds like none of the people in the nursing home had any side effects except maybe mild sore arms. And that's what the data shows is the older the person receiving the vaccine, 
the less severe uh, the side effects are. Probably because their immune system's not as robust at mounting a response. That's why some of the vaccines like the flu shot, we have to use higher doses of the flu shot to maintain a good immune response compared to a younger person. Exactly. And we'd like to point out to listeners, we're not going to be particularly covering a lot of ethical topics tonight. We did that on our last vaccine episode, number 189, with Dr. Joe Zalot from the National Catholic Bioethics Center. So if you want to find episode number 189 and a discussion of ethical concerns regarding vaccines, we refer you there. Also, at the urging of a number of my colleagues in the Catholic Medical Association, and some other friends, I wrote an article that's been published online. It's called To Be Vaccinated or Not, Answering Common Questions for Catholics. If you search that with my name, it's a bunch of questions summarized that we have gotten from listeners, from friends, from patients, and I ran it by a lot of experts that I know around the country before publishing it. So I think it will be very helpful uh, if you want something that you can reference or send to somebody else in trying to make your decision. I think a lot of people are looking for a a easy handout or an easy article that comes from a Catholic perspective. So I would strongly recommend that. And, you know, Tom, that's not the only thing you've been writing either, right? (laughs) So this is a big week for Tom. Tom's book, is this your first book, Tom? This is my first book. I've done chapters, but I've never done a book. Tom's first book is kicking off this week. And tell, tell us a little bit about that, Tom. Uh, I've been giving talks on the crucifixion from a medical, historical, theological, psychological standpoint for over 30 years since medical school. And I finally had enough people ask me to write it. And finally, a publisher, Catholic Publishing House, asked me to write it, that uh, Our Sunday Visitor is uh, releasing my book this Friday. It's called What Christ Suffered. A Doctor's Journey Through the Passion. And this is unique compared to other books because, number one, unlike any of the other medical treatises, is that a word? I think it is. It goes back through the history of crucifixion, everything ever written from you know the time of Herodotus in the 5th century BC through the time of Constantine. So it's got all the Greek and Latin information. It's got ancient graffiti, ancient artwork, ancient inscriptions, archaeology, as well as modern uh, re- medical reconstructions of what happened. It dispels a lot of myths, but it not only shows us how Christ suffered, it shows us how we can suffer more effectively because it ties in church teaching on the Christian meaning of human suffering. And the Christian yeah. meaning of human suffering is simply salvation, redemption, but it makes it practical. Well, I'm really excited for this because getting to hang out with you for several years now, Tom, I've got to see that talk and that topic given a couple different times. And this is not something that's just a, an emotional kind of reflection on Mm-mm. the crucifixion. This is no. a, a scientific research-based talk. And it changed my view of the cru- crucifixion quite a bit because there's a lot of things that I thought I knew just talking to people, oh, this is how Christ died and this is what he suffered. And when you look at the evidence, it's just not there. So just as a teaser, I'd encourage everybody to pick that up when it drops this week. Yeah, please do. And if you do read it, please leave a review. My hope is that this will change people's lives to love Christ more. But also, whatever royalties I receive, I'm donating to the Catholic Medical Association's work in outreach to future Catholic doctors, the pre-medical students and the medical students. And as another teaser, uh, we're going to be interviewing one of the main men responsible for some of the data in that book. His name is Dr. John Cook, a theology professor down at LaGrange College in Georgia, wrote a tome, a true research scholarly work on the history of crucifixion in the Mediterranean. So a lot of the things he unearthed were instrumental in what I put in my book, and we plan to air that show the first weekend of Lent. Man, so we've got a lot of stuff coming up, especially as we prepare for Lent, but be on the lookout for that. And now more more about vaccines. I know we haven't uh, talked about COVID in a few weeks, so I'm excited to hear more from the experts, especially now I want to ask him, is it supposed to cause a fever like that? Because that, that did surprise me, but hopefully our listeners won't be surprised. I know before we get to the, the interview, we do want to get to our patented medical trivia question though, Tom, do you have something for us today? Of course I do, and the category is the COVID-19 vaccine priority phases. So the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices recommended that phase 1A for vaccinations would be two groups, healthcare personnel and long-term care facility residents, otherwise known as nursing homes. And so that's why I and my father have received it in group 
1A. And nursing home residents have accounted for at least 40% of deaths from COVID in the U.S. That's why it's such an important group. Now realize that states are actually the ones who are setting priorities. So states will do things differently. But these are the CDC recommendations. So what categories of individuals are included in the second phase, phase 1B? Remember, phase 1A, healthcare providers who take care of live patients in front of them, as well as nursing home residents. Who's in group 1B? You'll get the answer near the end of the show, but we'll be back soon here from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio on Dr. Doctor with our two special guests, Dr. Carson and Dr. Gravenstein, otherwise known as Paul and John. Welcome to the interview portion of our show when we have a twofer today. Paul Carson, Public Health and Infectious Disease, and John Gravenstein, a PhD in Epidemiology and a Vaccine Expert. And John sent me a few days ago some comments that Pope Francis made uh, over the last weekend where he said that the vaccines were a life-saving ethical obligation and the refusal to do so was suicidal. What do you think about that, John? But um, it, it goes back to, I think, when, I, when you first had me on, Tom, and I, I made the comment that nobody was being called to martyrdom to yes. object about, you know, remote fetal origins. And, and, you know, here we have the Pope saying the same thing. And, 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 and I think the suicidal part is interesting because it, if he, he was being interviewed by an Italian journalist and I, th I think what he was saying is, you know, people rely on you, your spouse, your family, your kids, your parents, your coworkers, your patients, if you're a healthcare worker. Um, and for you to make, you know, for you to get yourself uh, ill or get yourself killed by refusing vaccination uh, doesn't do anybody any good. Paul, what do you think? Yeah, I, I would I would agree. Uh, it, it gets a little bit to... You know, the paper that we wrote in uh, the Catholic Medical Association Journal a while back on um, Catholic social teaching and the duty to vaccinate, that it's, it's not only to protect ourselves, but a charitable act towards others that we, you know, take whatever small risk there might be with that vaccine to kind of make ourselves a shield uh, to protect others. And, um, you know, I, it, it does get to the, the point that I try to make frequently. There really is no other realistic way out of this. I mean, this just keeps going and going and going until it probably works its way through the majority of the population until we get an adequately vaccinated uh, population to really stop uh, exponential growth and, and perpetual spread. So I saw something today that said that they're thinking at current vaccination rates, World Health Organization said we're not out of this by the end of this calendar year of 2021. What do you think, John? True. Um, think of all the people in South America, Africa, right. Asia, right? I mean, the Chinese are have the people in China have um, vaccinated several million people, but uh, you know it, it's going to take for the, for a production to be sufficient to get to seven billion people. It's going to take a while. So what happened today, January 12th? There was a press conference. Press conference over at HHS, Secretary of HHS, Alex Azar, et cetera. Um, and basically, the, and the biggest headline is probably going to be that the uh, HHS is calling on um, changing who to get vaccinated, that it should be everybody 65 plus to open up more channels of vaccination a comment that they're confident enough in vaccine production that they're, that all the all of the doses currently available should be used with nothing held in reserve and future production will be the reserve that will account for dose two, that they're confident enough that they can do that. That's got to be a big change for a lot of people who planned this fine rollout with the healthcare people first and then nursing homes second. Paul, what, what have you seen in your state as a result of that? Yeah, after that uh, press conference, I got an immediate call from our state immunization director, who's really pretty phenomenal. She's one of the leaders in the country on this, where we have uh, put more vaccines than any other state in the arms of people, uh, you know, per by percentage of how much we were distributed. So she's done a great job. But she uh, she was and, and she had a call with the governor's office at one o'clock and he was going to press her on like, OK, how are you going to change your plans? and What are you going to do? And um, <laughs> And she's wondering, like, there was no information to the states on 
you know, when they're going to get these vaccines, how many. Um, and uh, if you say everybody's 65 and older, that's a lot of people. And so how do you, uh, how do you, you know, line them up? How do you rank them? Do you, in mass immunization events we've seen like in Florida, some other places have been kind of a disaster. So, you know, they, we like to have more time to plan logistically for these sorts of things. But I, I will say I'm not, I'm not necessarily in disagreement with this. I, I actually like the idea of getting more vaccines with one dose in more arms fast than uh, two doses in less people, uh, you know, spread out over time. Okay, so that brings up a great question. So, John, you're the vaccine expert. I've seen these different people, many of them not even medical, saying just give one dose to a bunch of people and don't worry if they get the second dose or not. What do you think of that? Well, so we like to have we like to work on the basis of evidence and uh, <laughs> yes. that really nice ninety five percent effectiveness uh, number that we like to pay attention to was based on two doses. And so uh, if the dosing interval is you know, three weeks apart or four weeks apart, if it stretches an extra week, an extra two weeks, that's no big deal. I mean, sorry, there, there's, there's two pieces that go into that. There's the immunology of it. The body will remember that it got dose one and will respond just fine to dose two. You are vulnerable that extra week, extra two weeks. And so don't be complacent. Don't you know, go off on sabbatical. You want to get back in and get your get your uh, second dose. But the body will remember, and, and uh, um, so that you know, th- th- those are the two two ways to look at it. I'd, I'd add to that we have like a little fragment of evidence, <clears throat> not 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 anything close to what John is talking about. What we'd like, but when you look at the infection rates or curves in both the Moderna and the Pfizer trial, um, at about day twelve or so. There's, there's just almost no more infections, uh, or very, very few, in between that first dose and the second dose. Now, we don't know what would have happened if you didn't give them the second dose and you would have followed them a bunch more time. But for that one to two weeks, like they looked about as protected as anybody. Uh, it really seemed to kind of shut it down. And so I, I think you can make an argument to like hope for, uh, pray for, ramped up production and gets it out and that this one dose may be partially protective in a lot of people uh, until we get to that second dose. John, how effective do you think the rollout of the vaccine has been? There's a lot of complaints in the press that it's been too slow. How would you respond to that? It's been unfortunately slow, but uh, to a certain extent, I can't say I'm particularly surprised. This was a heck of a lot of work for, you know, it's, you know, this was not, um, the, the failure of a plan in Atlanta or in Washington or something like that, um, the, the, the states and the cities and the counties and the, and the hospitals and, and, all, and all, the pharmacies and the institutions were dropped. You know, they, they, they couldn't get started in their planning until they had the, the final documents from the FDA. And then I, the way I say it is that there's a thousand learning curves around the country. And some folks picked it up real fast and figured it out. And some you know, didn't put enough labor on it, maybe, and and had more and have had more trouble. Uh, it, these are these are growing pains and working out the kinks kind of stuff. I think each day that goes on now, we're going to see more and more doses given. But um, a little disappointed that it wasn't smoother. And obviously, the the folks trying to figure out where's my dose are uh, are, are frustrated. Yeah, and you know one of the things that I've heard from from some of the people is after the doses have been given. Now we we were talking in the beginning of the episode our our experience with uh, side effects after the second shot or reactions. Um, I, I'm going to just throw this out there. I've I've had all the regular shots and I've never noticed any any reactions to speak of. Man, it, the second dose really surprised me. Is that something you guys are hearing from other people? How? You know, I'm afraid this might scare people off or people might say, you know, I'll take one dose. Thank you. And that's it for me. Well, so um, second doses are a little more reactogenic. So I, I don't know what you had personally because we weren't on yet. But, you know, if it was swelling and redness and, and pain at the injection site, that's you know pretty common. Yeah, I, I had kind of a headache and a fever for about 24 hours. I mean, it was short lived and it was moderated with Tylenol and ibuprofen. But I guess it surprised me. Is that something that we should tell folks just to kind of anticipate? It goes yes, part and parcel. Hopefully, hopefully your providers did tell you to anticipate it. Um, it, it, it part of it's uh, uh, you know the vaccine is working. That right. you know that you you have 
antibodies already from the first dose and it's it's beginning to look at that second dose as an intruder um, and and that's sort of what you either at the at the injection site or uh, through through the body um, it, it would also you know that, that that's the kind of antibody that you want to prevent infection the really serious dangerous deadly infection so I'm sorry so John, it's is there a relationship between the strength of the side effects and how protected you are immunologically? In other words, between immunogenicity and reactogenicity. It's not really clear cut because you would give the Andrews, you know, surveys of how bad was it and what are they comparing it to? And it, it's really hard. Those are really subject, you know, uh, they're subjective symptoms and it's hard to measure them and do that kind of comparison. So if, if I can just weigh in a little bit on that. <clears throat> so I'm about 26 hours after my second dose and it's not been a good day. <laughs> I, I've every joint and muscle aches. I've got a headache, had a little bit of chills. Um, it's, it's been a little bit of a rough day, but I, what I tell people is I am overjoyed yes. that my immune system is clearly responding. And in fact, so I'm, I'm going to say, you know, I, I, John is right, but I'm going to say that I suspect reactogenicity means immunogenicity. And, you know, you see less reactogenicity in the elderly, um, and that's with most vaccines uh, and with this one as well. Um, actually, the study showed that they had a pretty good immune response too, or at least they, actually, they had good protection. But um, in fact, I took this so far as there's a couple of, you know, so-so studies that suggest taking ibuprofen and Tylenol may blunt your immune response. So I'm like, I'm not taking any, I'm not taking any. Well, I, I caved here. <laughs> and swallowed ibuprofen with a glass of wine about an hour ago because I was like, I, all right, I give up. Uh, <laughs> so wh while you guys are whining about your side effects, <laughs> let me remind you: take a look at the, the you know the TV pictures of the people in the ICUs who have the infection. Yeah, yeah. And exactly. that's what you that's what you need to compare this to. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, COVID stuff unrelated to vaccine for just a moment. Um, Paul, what do you think are the most important trends? in cases, hospitalizations, and deaths that we should be aware of as Americans right now? I, you know, as somebody who kind of does public health research, epidemiology, I am sort of fascinated by what is happening. And, and, um, and, and I think simplistic explanations just do not suffice. So I, I actually sicked one of my grad students on so go to North Dakota and South Dakota. Everybody was calling us like the you know worst place in the universe uh, in October, and November. Uh, you know, the New York Times wrote an article about a disgrace, a national disgrace. And our governor implemented a whole bunch of measures in the middle of November. South Dakota governor did essentially nothing, and we're both falling um, rapidly. And we've got almost. I mean, we're doing great now, absolutely great. And uh, I had a little aha moment with this where I can't name the group because uh, they, they asked me not to, but a network of people that I know pretty well and work with, I learned because they, they have to undergo very, very regular testing. Uh, and the person who was telling me, hey, we're doing so great. We're hardly having anybody positive. And then I, I kind of asked the numbers and I'm like, wait a minute, you're not testing like 65% of your people. And he goes, oh yeah, uh, they've all had it. Oh. And I was like, oh, whoa, wait a minute. Uh, 65% of this network that eats together, lives together, works together, et cetera. And that, I mean, that's probably pushing, you know, some form of. And it made me kind of think, you know, I wonder if this disease really transmits in sort of networks or clusters, first and foremost. And the most risk taking kind of is sort of burned through them. That particular cluster doesn't interact with my cluster, who are kind of hunkered down in homes and you know, kind of, you know, on Zoom or whatever. Um, so I kind of wonder, you know, these waves, these crests and waves that come and go. How do we explain that? Like, why did California have a huge summer surge? Probably because you know they're going indoors because it's hotter than heck, and you know that, that explains some of that. But then here we are again. Is it? Is it uh, risk compensation? Is it, you know, measure fatigue? Is it is moving on to some other networks? Uh, you know, I, I think we've got some more to learn here and we're not through it. We're, we're sure not through. It. I mean, to see it sort of resurge in Arizona and California, warning, you know, warning. That's fascinating, Paul. John, back to some of the side effects. I'm getting questions that, uh, you know, these uh, 
videos are showing up on the internet of people with like an epileptic type seizure after the vaccine. Um, you mentioned uh, to me earlier an OBGYN doctor in Florida who who died, but it may be unrelated. What are we to make? What are people to make when they see these one-offs of these really unusual potential reactions? First, know that every one of those reactions is being checked into in great detail by health departments, local you know, local health departments by CDC and the FDA. Then, um, other than the anaphylaxis that we should talk about, uh, these yes. allergic reactions, we, we can come back to that. Other than that one, there, there's nothing yet seen as caused by the vaccine. So uh, roughly 10 million, maybe if um, there's a reporting lag, so maybe 12 million people have gotten vaccinated so far. Um, and if you had a city of 10 or 12 million people, how many people go to the emergency room every day? Regrettably, how many people in a city of 10 or 20 million, 10 or 12 million die every day? There are some. It's not zero. And so, first of all, we're, these cases are all going to get looked at extremely carefully. Uh, but there's nothing um, that's evident so far that says that anything other than what's usual is happening. Yeah, one one of the things that I think will be kind of a task or a goal, I think, of this episode on on the radio and the podcast is to try and encourage folks who might be on the fence. I've talked to a lot of really good people who are vaccine lovers, and they're like, uh, "You first, and I I went first. I'm I'm done. I'll be immune on two days. I'm really excited." <laughs> um, what kind of encouragement could we give these folks apart from we know we know COVID is bad? Do we think that over over time we get a bigger body of evidence? you know, 12 million people and not a lot of negative things. Just you get sick for a day or two and that's it. You feel bad. Then you're immune. At what point do we think that people will start jumping on board more? So uh, uh, long ago, I used I worked for Merck. And um, every now and again, we would see people say, well, you know, Gardasil is a new vaccine. And uh, when it's been in more people, I'll, uh, I'll take it. It's been out for 10 years. What are you talking about? It's a new vaccine. Uh, so, I mean, um, some. So, when is an, when is there enough evidence? And so, this is human nature. Some people just never get their confidence up, and and um, uh, it's not for it's not for it has nothing to do with fact. It's more about their subjective opinions and what they've heard, and do they have confidence in the person who's offering the vaccine to them? And that sort of thing. And so there, there's a lot of human nature in all this. Before we go into some vaccine questions from listeners, there's one article that came out this week that I thought was instructive from Sweden. Maybe, Paul, you can comment. They compared the rates of hospitalizations and deaths in kindergarten through 16-year-old um, students in the four months before the pandemic through February, in the four months after March through June. They saw no difference in hospitalizations and deaths in children or teachers between the two periods of time. And the only thing they did in their schools in that time was implement social distancing, not even having masks. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think, I, I have to apologize, I haven't seen that direct study, but there's been actually a number of others. And a great resource for this is what's called the Harvard Resource Library on uh, schools and COVID. They, they have a plethora of data that they keep updated on a regular basis. Um, and I, I think the evidence is just mounting more and more and more that schools are not a big problem, that, you know, the kids for the most part do okay, that if they are getting it, it's typically, they may be getting it from their friends, but they're not really transmitting it widespread in the schools. What the teachers do seems to, you know, protect them for, for the most part. I, I actually think the deleterious effects that, you know, you covered, Tom, in the paper that, uh, you know, we put in the Lineker of having kids out of school is really starting to outweigh the, the, those yes. effects are outweighing the risks of having kids back in school. And I, I, I just had a conversation with a, a colleague of mine who's a pediatrician, MPH, um, and she's on the school board here. And we're kind of we're pushing the school districts to kind of start getting things back face to face. And with that, we're going to have to take a break and come back for the third segment of our show here on Dr. Doctor from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. 
Ave Maria mutual funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. And we're back with Dr. Doctor here today talking about COVID, now in the age of the COVID vaccine. And a uh, question for, for Paul and John here. You guys can both take a stab at it. We've heard a lot about anaphylaxis and, you know, the potential reaction. What is there for people to know? And if they have allergies, is it okay to still get the COVID shot? So there was just a, a CDC. So right after the vaccines uh, first came on to the wider distribution, there were a few cases in, um, uh, in, in England and then in Alaska and et cetera. And it, it raised the question of, uh, uh, you know, are, is, is there a risk for severe allergic reactions, anaphylaxis after vaccination? And so the CDC just did a report last week that said, um, based on the first 1.8 million doses administered of the Pfizer vaccine, um, there were 21 cases of anaphylaxis. So that's effectively one in 100,000. That's more common than with other vaccines, but it's still one in 100,000, which means there's 900, you know, 99,999 with no problem. So if you've got ragweed allergy or, you know, grass or mold pollen, that's irrelevant. It has no effect. But if you've, if you've um, had uh, allergic reaction to medications, especially injectable medications, obviously tell people that as you're in the in the waiting room and filling out the screening forms and you should be observed for a little bit a few extra minutes 30 minutes instead of 15 minutes and it, it, the, the current theory is that uh, the, m- these are mrna vaccines we talked about that a couple shows ago it's a little piece of protein and a little small segment of protein and it has to be protected to get it into the cells because otherwise it'll fall apart and it, it so it's coated with lipids with little fat uh, molecules and that uh, part of that fat molecule might be what's triggering the allergy. Is that true with Moderna vaccine also? It also has the lipids. There have been a few cases in the news, but uh, seemingly not as many. Now, they, that, that report last week I talked about was Pfizer's only because it was the first, the only product being given sure. for a few weeks. We'll know more, more soon, but the, this, the, the allergy precaution, the screening extra time, of observation applies to both products. If you're going to have anaphylaxis, how soon after the shot will it happen? It could be a single digit number of minutes. A few cases were out at 30 minutes. Uh, very unlikely, be, but not zero beyond that. Um, so if anybody's offering you vaccination while you're in your car, drive through vaccination programs, pull over and go to the parking lot. Please do not go out onto the city streets. <laughs> And the treatment for anaphylaxis is epinephrine. It's it's very readily treated. That's uh, a medication. It, it's adrenaline. Uh, people, uh, public would know it. Uh, and it's it you know, gets your heart pumping stronger and opens uh, or constricts your blood vessels. Sorry, and um, it treats the allergic reaction very quickly. We we have a couple listener questions that I want to make sure we get to at this point in the show. One is about the ethical issues, especially related to aborted uh, fetal stem cell lines. This comes from Cliff listening in New Jersey. Uh, The question, Paul, is are there any vaccines being developed without any use of the fetal cell lines for either production or testing? Yeah, there are some in the pipeline, although they're not kind of on deck quite as fast as the less ethical uh, vaccines uh, that are a little less remote uh, than the current uh, current ones. So, Sanofi uh, has a vaccine uh, in the pipeline. I think uh, John, you may be able to comment. I think Merck does. Uh, Novavax is the other one. I think Novavax. Yeah. So, I mean, there are some, but they're probably uh, several months out if they uh, prove to be efficacious and safe in clinical trials. And we, we talked on another episode with Dr. Joe Zaylot about the different levels of, of kind of ethical problems with the aborted fetal cell lines. But kind of a follow-up question from our listener is, why do they have to use these cell lines? Why don't they just make some more or use adult stem cells that we hear so much about? Why are these used even in testing? Well, so SARS-CoV-2 virus, the virus that causes COVID-19, 
doesn't grow in chicken eggs. So it's as a production medium, it's just not available. Uh, and, and so does it even work as a production medium is, you know, one of the first questions. Then the, the, uh, a couple of these technologies, Johnson Johnson, AstraZeneca use an adenovirus, a, 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 a carrier virus to take in the, the gene snippet that uh, will produce the right protein. And, and they require HEK or, uh, or similar cells that had a, an aborted fetus one, one in the 1970s, one in the 1980s. So that, well, if you wanted to adopt that technology, you must then use the, the HEK293 or PERC6 uh, cell lines. It, it, it's the only way to use that technology. So um, take us back to the spring where we didn't know if any of these would work. You know, now, now we may have some choices. But does it make sense that we could look at adult stem cells in the future as uh, replacing these HEC-293 and PERC6 lines? Uh, so it doesn't necessarily have to be a stem cell. I'm not a molecular biologist, but, um, you know, it could be that the right um, human, uh, adult human uh, cell could be manipulated to, to have it uh, immortalized. And so it could be used over the long term. Paul, you, you, may, be one, you may want to add here. I, I don't know about that very well either, but I think the issue is kind of what you just, that last part you just alluded to is those cells are harder to immortalize. So to keep them going in uh, propagation. Uh, so, you know, a lot of the companies, they do it because these cell lines are easier to work with, but I, I don't think that should stop uh, us and organ, you know, organizations like the Catholic Medical Association, et cetera, from you know, pleading with these companies to try other cell lines. I was going to ask John, you know, uh, this was an issue with, you know, the rubella vaccine, but you can grow that in green monkey kidney cell lines. Uh, it's easier, uh, you know, in the, um, you know, Y-star cell line or MRC5, but you can. And I don't know if it's, do you know if you can't get mRNA to uh, transfect a, a uh, green monkey kidney cell, for example, which has been used in a lot of other uh, technologies? We're, we're mixing a, f a few issues. So, so um, from the industry perspective, from the manufacturer's perspective, they want something that that works. That's something that is it's a utilitarian analysis. So, if we gave them something else that worked, a, a better mousetrap, they would use it. And so I, I, I think part of this is getting uh, the Catholic universities or whatever to develop better cell lines that are also ethical cell lines. And if the, if it is indeed a better mousetrap, then the industry will use it. Let's go. We have another listener, Rebecca, who sent in some questions. I think they're basic and good. We need to know the answers. So once the vaccine, once the mRNA has told your body to make the spike protein, where do the proteins go and how long do they last? Basically, they go to your lymph nodes, uh, which is why when you get mononucleosis or uh, the common cold, you'll get swollen lymph nodes. The, 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 your lymph nodes, like under your armpit or uh, in the neck or something like that. Um, and the, the, that's where a lot of immune cells are that are beginning to trap viruses, bacteria, and uh, whisk them away. What cell, what cell surface does a spike protein show up on that then goes to the lymph nodes? All right, so let's, let's follow the mRNA into the body. So, yes. so uh, the needle comes into your muscle. Uh, it leaves behind the mRNA and the lipid. That, that goes into this into um, uh, muscle cells, and then and then that that produces the spike protein that comes out of the cell. That goes to the lymph node. Uh, antibodies are beginning to form, and and white blood and white blood cells, white um, lymphocytes are uh, beginning to recognize all this stuff. And it's a cascade of many different parts that is the immune response. So is a spike protein first expressed on top of a muscle cell before any other cell? Yes. Okay. And then some of the white blood cells, lymphocytes, bring it to the lymph node. Right. How long do both the mRNA last intact in those muscle cells, and how long does the spike protein last on top of whatever cell it's on top of? Hours is the order of magnitude. And I think they've, they've done some studies in animals, and I think it's down to you know, near nothingness uh, within 24 hours. And the mRNA has no opportunity and no way to get into our genome, correct? That's right. 
Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's impossible. So for RNA to be, to be integrated into our DNA re- requires reverse transcriptase, which we don't have. Human beings don't make that. Mm. Great answer. And then Rebecca asks, is the number of proteins, so the number of copies of spike protein made limited by the number of mRNA strands in the vaccine, or does the body go on for a long period of time making more spike protein? So, um, so the, 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 the cell that receives the mRNA makes it for a few hours and then shuts it off. It's, okay. it's like, you know, it, as you, as you need a protein, and this is, um, consistent with what happens when you cut your finger and you need to make some, or, you know, you need to make some cells to, to fill in, to repair the cut or, or as you're growing bone or, you know, as, as your kids are getting taller, you need certain kinds of proteins f- for a little while. And then, and then the body knows to shut it off. And, and that's what exactly what happens here is the body says, okay, uh, you, you know, you've had your turn uh, away with you and let's go, let's get on to uh, uh, whatever the body needs next. Uh, kind of another question, shifting topics here about herd immunity. Um, Christmas Eve, uh, Dr. Fauci made some waves when he, he had kind of <laughs> commented that, you know, there were surveys saying about 60% of people, you know, about half of Americans would take the vaccine. He said the herd immunity was 70%. And then when it went up to 60% of people who might take the vaccine, he nudged it up to 80 or 85, kind of, you know, playing along with what the public was kind of ready to hear. Um, what what do you guys think about that? Is that uh, it seems like that might be distrustful. Uh, I, have have you, know, you guys seen that type of thing before? You know, I don't know that I can pluck out another example. I'm sure that similar things have been done. So it, I think that was a big mistake. I suspect he's kicking himself for uh, doing that, although I don't know that um, because we've <laughs> there is polling data that really shows a steady erosion in trust in public health uh, organizations, public health officials, even the medical community, I I think it's actually imperative that we be as honest as possible, as transparent as possible. And when we don't know the answer, we say we don't know the answer. Um, When he kind of admits to like, yeah, I was kind of fudging that number up a little bit more to try and get maybe more people to take it. That might not be the real number we need for me. Uh, That's a mistake. I mean, he's basically saying I'm being a little disingenuous here to get a result that I want. Um, I, I think we need to be straight. Uh, honesty is always the best policy. I, I think we, we should also cut them a little slack, but we've learned a, lo- a whole lot about how the virus acts over the last few months. The, the other piece I'm curious about is why do people care about herd immunity? Um, I want personal protection from vaccination. Mm-hmm. I mean, is this, is this uh, um, you know, the, the, the good view of this would be, I, I want to know about herd immunity so I can know when to schedule my kids to go off on vacation. Or, right. or is it, I, I really want herd immunity because I, I'm going to be a freeloader and I want you all to get your immunity so I can, you know, ride on your coattails. I'm, I don't, I think there's a little bit of both going on. Here. What, speaking of herd immunity, what are the best numbers we have now, now that we've learned more? Do you guys have any newer numbers or is it kind of that 80, 85% that we're still thinking? So it's a mathematical formula that that tends to be pretty predictive. It's the, the simple kind of uh, boiled down version of the formula is one minus one over R naught. R naught is the reproductive number. The, the devil in the details is, is that R naught has had a range of anywhere from about two, two and a half to as high as six. Most people think the R naught is probably, you know, R naught means how many new cases will you get from an index case? How many people will, will a sick person or an infected person spread it to? Most people think it's uh, around three. Um, if it's around three, that means you need about 66% uh, of the population um, immune. If you got a vaccine that's 95% effective, then, well, you got to adjust for that, you know, 5% that didn't get a good uh, response. So, you know, 70 plus. If we're wrong, if it's more, you know, three and a half or four, well, then, you you know, maybe there's where I cut Dr. Fauci some slack. You know, maybe we do need it to be 75 or 80 percent. So we've got a little under five minutes left. We're going to cover a lot of information in a bonus podcast. Like we're going to talk about what about these claims about infertility? Does it prevent severe infection hospitalization? Well, you're going to have to come to the podcast only to hear that. But I would like to cover these new variants 
of SARS-CoV-2 that have been found. How concerned should we be about this British variant and now also apparently a South American variant? Uh, yeah, so was it South American or South African? I'm sorry, South African. South African. So, um, you know, I think the UK variant had something like uh, <clears throat> 17 uh, point mutations, which, you know, uh, that's a handful. Um, uh, there was just a, a study published that looked at um, do the antibodies that are generated from the vaccine neutralize the new variant? And it did very well. So I, I think most people are pretty confident that it's going to be that the immune response we develop to the current uh, vaccines are going to um, be able to deal with that UK variant. I don't know enough about the South, South uh, African variant. Uh, maybe, John, you know a little bit more there. But I think for right now, I, you know, I think it's on our radar. It's, it's a, a little bit troubling that, you know, it's mutating because at first we were kind of saying, well, it looks to be really slow. Not, not, and, it's, and it certainly is slower than influenza, not nearly as you know, turning over and new variants uh, as influenza, but this could be a problem down the road. I don't think it's an immediate problem with uh, um, our current vaccine response. So, so the, um, the the molecular biologists are really good at figuring out little little changes, and so to a certain extent, this is they can now detect if the virus changes from a red T-shirt to a green T-shirt. <laughs> that, that that's enough to make it a variant. What um, what matters is that the, what, the, what they saw in the UK and South Africa was that it's more transmissible, which means right. it can, it's not more dangerous, but it, well, it, it's not more lethal, but it's more dangerous because it can reach more people. Um, and so, but does it matter? But from a vaccine standpoint, does it matter? Because it, that, you know, changing, you know, t-shirts doesn't change whether the vaccine works or not. So the vaccine should, it, it would take such a fundamental change to the virus structure uh, to evade the vaccine that we would probably have to change its name. The, uh, the spike protein would have to disappear, right? As long or as or, change, or change its shape, you know, or something like that. And uh, But then you'd be calling it SARS-CoV-3 instead of SARS-CoV-2. In our last two minutes, what are the most important things each of you want our listeners to know about COVID as of January 12th, 2021? We'll start with you, Paul. Yeah, the thing that I would want people to take home and what I try and emphasize is they weigh, you know, will I get the vaccine or not? So first is, I don't think we get out of this without the vaccine getting us to some population level immunity. And I, to answer John's earlier question is, I want it because I want to go to church without my mask on and I want to be able to go out to the restaurant and I want to go watch football games. So uh, it's not just my own personal protection, but I, actually I feel a little more comfortable about those things, but I can't do them still until we all kind of get there. But we have to weigh this against the risk of the virus. And I'm just so tired of hearing, you know, it's only, you know, um, you know, 99.5% of people survive this virus. Why are we getting so worked up about 0.5% mortality? Well, 0.5% mortality when everybody gets it or 0.6 or 0.7% when everybody gets it, which is possible. There's a lot of death. But the, the thing that I would really want people to kind of understand is we're learning a lot more about this long COVID now. And that is scary. Um, I just had lunch uh, yesterday at the hospital with one of my cardiology and one of my pulmonary colleagues. And they're telling me they're seeing so many people back in the clinic now who were hospitalized with COVID that are they're developing, they're, they're bad. I mean, it's scary. They're developing. Oh, that's super- great. I have 30 seconds for John. Yeah. It's a bad, bad disease, whether it kills you or whether you uh, survive it in, in, with those troubles. And it's preventable. We, you can avoid it. Fine, your the probability is really, really low, and the consequence is really, really high. Get vaccinated. Thanks be to God. Thank you for both being with us. We're going to now go into overtime and cover a lot of things we didn't like. How much vaccine can they make? How long is it going to be to get it out? And some of those other questions I alluded to. But we'll be back with the end of this episode and the answer to the trivia question after the break here on Dr. Doctor. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the medical trivia question. So, phase 1A for vaccination, healthcare workers, and nursing home residents. Who's in group phase 1B? And that is frontline essential workers or first responders like firefighters, police officers, correction officers, and people over the age of 75. Remember, these were recommendations of the CDC. And as we learned in this episode, that's changed. Now the CDC is recommending just everybody over 65. 
prevent the most amount of deaths. And Andrew, what do you have for our top three takeaways? I was going to say, I guess we'll see what the CDC says tomorrow. But uh, as of right now, <laughs> this is the answer, right? Now, the, the top three takeaways, I would say, uh, number one, uh, for, for getting the vaccine, anticipate some side effects. That's something that I usually don't say to people. I usually say, ah, oh, there probably won't be any, maybe one in so many people. I would anticipate some side effects, and that's not a bad thing. It means the vaccine's working. You can take Tylenol and Motrin, and that will help a great deal. Um, number two, I guess I would say the disease is worse than the vaccine, for sure. Whatever perceived risks, and we went through several of them on the podcast, which we just recorded. Y'all should catch that. Um, any perceived side effects or problems, far inferior to the problems, the real problems that I get to see in patients that, that we care for, the disease is way worse. And then number three, I guess the, the final point would be, I'd really recommend everybody get vaccinated as soon as they're eligible. That's the way we get to, to stop the pandemic. And for you personally uh, listening, that's how you get to be safe and you don't have to roll the dice with the virus. And as we learned in the, in the podcast segment, which you have not heard yet, is that you don't have to quarantine uh, if you are vaccinated and get exposed to somebody with the, um, with the virus. At least that's what the CDC is recommending. So already more freedom of movement. Yeah, that's exciting that we're, we're at this point. I know for the longest time we were waiting, when is it going to be here? And so now it is here in past tense for Tom and I. Amen. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and on podcast of the Catholic Medical Association brought to you from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app and be sure to rate and review our show to help new listeners find us. Tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit redeemerradio.com slash doctor.